Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome, everybody, to Nightlight. We're very excited to have a great guest with us tonight, and both Mark and I have been perusing and delving through his books, many, and uh, it, the guest tonight is someone that, that we have both talked to before, so we're very excited about expanding upon the wisdom that he has shared with us before. So, Mark, welcome to Nightlight. Thank, thank you. It's been... Uh long time since we've uh, d done a show. I think it's been, what, eight days? <laughs> yeah, just about. Yeah, and it's an honor for me to kick off the week with uh, Nightlight on a, uh, it's actually a, a Wednesday night, but uh, by the time it airs, it's going to be Thursday morning. We have, have to do a special pre-record and yeah, you were living in a, a skating rink for a couple of days. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> so it's like the first show of the week is actually Thursday. <laughs> well, just so we get it in, that's all that counts. It yeah, doesn't matter uh, which day it is. Yeah, we really had a pretty nasty blizzard uh, last week. Yeah, it's... Uh, um, yeah, I think... Uh, yeah, next week um, might not be. We may not be doing our co-host show because I'm going to be having a hernia repair for uh, prepping for the following week's captivating topic. <laughs> just, just, just hang on for that. Yeah, just uh, but but uh, yeah, just keep checking. Uh, you, you know. You know, BarbaraDeLong.com you know, website because uh, you know we you know, do have a lot of nothing. Uh, you know, a, a, a lot of new guests uh, you know, coming onto the show. Uh, you know, people have some new uh, materials. Uh, you know, some are uh, some international guests. You know, we're trying to do some. Uh, you know, like afternoon 
shows so that they don't have to you know have the dracula hours yeah just to work us into their schedule and that's asking a lot to you know for someone to stay up from like three to five a.m so um you know um you know, so so we do have a, a, a lot of neat things in the works. It's just you know, we're, uh, just keep checking the website to to find out uh, when we're going to be doing those shows. You know, uh, and and you know, if you liked hearing Merle Fankhauser on Coast to Coast this morning, you know, he'll he'll be with us on uh, was it February twelfth. And mm-hmm. the next day we have another uh, fantastic musician, Arlen Roth, on the 13th. So uh, there's a couple musicians uh, for the, um, um, you know, val- as we approach Valentine's Day. So get <clears throat> get some serenades in. <laughs> but, yeah, so but uh, you know, we are zoom, you know, zooming tonight, so we're kind of like uh, being on TV or the big screen. So is that you know my mom's senior in college photo over my left shoulder, or is it a portrait of little Ze- little Zelda, or is it an esoteric symbol hidden in the background? For or you know, not on our thirty third or forty seventh show, but our eighteenth show. Mm-hmm. I don't do math, so I don't know what eighteen symbolizes. It's uh, a nine. It's completion. Okay. Well, tw- uh, we've done two two complete sets of nine. Then. <laughs> yes, we do have. I, yeah. Do, do I even know what I'm even talking about? Probably, probably not. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but tell, night lights. Uh, tell me about your guest. Your guest is. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to it. This, this is. Uh, I, I worked really hard on this rant. Oh, okay. But he may he may grow hair all over his body and die before we get but, to him. So. But yeah, you know, uh, but our uh, you know, guest tonight is a night light fan favorites. Uh, he's a historian, 32nd degree Mason, author of the Royal Arch of Enoch's Cin- Cinema Symbolism 1 and 2, uh, Pact with the Devil, uh, Robert Sol- Robert W. Sullivan IV is here to set the record straight. Rob is one of the most insightful and passionate speakers on the lecture circuit. And you can find out more about Rob at his website, robertwsullivaniv.com. So, welcome, Rob. How are you? Hey, Barbara. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on Nightlight. Can't remember. I think this is about my fifth or sixth time on uh, the show. It's always a pleasure to be here. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, you know, be, be great as always. Always a, a fun talk. Always enlightening. Um, so, thank you for having me on. It's much appreciated. Yeah, yeah, you know, we always look forward to talking with you, Rob. Yeah, and yeah, as we you know gets um, into the early stages of our discussion tonight, um, yeah, maybe if we start with you know the really uh, I had some fantastic. 
silent movie and you know you don't really see a lot of people writing about about silent movies but you know, you, you do and, and and they are uh making uh what a comeback there's a resurgence of interest in them but it, you know but let's just say we you know we do start with uh the, the cabinet of uh, dr caligari that's you know, roughly 100 years of movies you analyze in cinema symbolism too uh, and then you you know orderly discuss like 5,000 years of history and literature iconography mythology ancient religions and how they're all become intertwined with um, our pop culture um, yeah, maybe we need to start off with you know, a general overview of you know, some of the um, mythological figures. You know, keep in mind is uh, you know, nightlight keeps expanding. Um, hopefully, we're getting a lot more listeners, and and they may not have heard you. So, so you know, let's look at uh, maybe if they want to get a copy of uh, you know the cinema symbolism. Uh, books like you know what are these like demiurges you talk about and and you know like golems the difference between the cabals and masonic symbols well it's symbols. yeah it, it's a broad question um the demiurge is the false god uh, is the god of the creator is a creator god he's part of uh gnosticism proper uh, the demiurge is the fashioner of the material world. Uh, he is a lesser god. Um, if in, in Gnosticism, there's a belief, uh, the, the mythology is there is a godhead out there, what is known as the monad. Um, and this is the spiritual godhead. Uh, it's unknowable. It's unnameable. Uh, it's beyond concept. Uh, and it has emanations, which are known as aeons. And the first thing these aeons try to do is study the monad, which any Gnostic will tell you is unknowable. It's unfathomable. And in this process, this produces error. And one of the aeons is cast out. Her name is Sophia. Uh, and she's thrown out of this uh, divine state, which is called the Pleroma. And she's cast down into matter. And as she's being cast down, she births uh, a god known as the Demiurge. It's a Greek, it comes from a, it's a Greek word. I believe it means maintenance man. And he is the fashioner creator of our universe. This is our reality. So the Demiurge is a, in Gnosticism is the God of the material world. Um, he's a false God. He's a lesser God. Um, and his sole purpose is to keep mankind in stasis, in slumber. And he, he runs the universe. He runs the world, but he runs it imperfectly. Uh, and in doing so, he employs a coterie of angels and demons to help him, which are known as archons. Uh, and their sole purpose pretty much is to keep mankind or humankind in, in stasis, in slumber, uh, unconscious. That's a good word to use. Uh, so, so that's what the demiurge is. Uh, that is a, a term specifically used in Gnostic uh, theology or religion. Uh, a golem is a... Uh, being that is uh, created uh, are, is artificial life. Um, it's, it's an inanimate object imbued with human characteristics. 
is what a, a golem is. Um, and this is, this is a product of Kabbalistic magic uh, through numbers, through the correct <clears throat> or pronunciation of names, letters, things like that. Uh, you, you create a spell to create a golem. Uh, in, in cinema, <clears throat> so for example, I wrote two books called Cinema Symbolism and Cinema Symbolism 2. So the demi, let's go back to the demiurge real quick. So in film, uh, the demiurge, the creator of the illusionary uh, reality, the false reality, this would be the architect from the Matrix movies. This would, of course, be Kristoff uh, from, from the Truman Show. Uh, these are the fashioners of the make-believe artificial reality. Um, interestingly, there is another Gnostic movie that came out, I believe, in 2004, excuse me, 13, called Snowpiercer. Uh, that is incredibly Gnostic. And uh, the Demiurge in that movie, at the very end, the Demiurge is re re revealed. And uh, who else does it turn out to be? Well, it's Ed Harris again. Uh, he plays a, a Demiurge named Wilford. And uh, that is completely uh, casting uh, because of his earlier appearance as the Demiurge in the Truman Show. Uh, so the architect from The Matrix and uh, the Kristoff uh, character, and of course, Wolford in uh, Snowpiercer, these would be great examples of the Gnostic Demiurge at work. Uh, a Kabbalistic golems, um, well, certainly uh, Roy Batty uh, in uh, Blade Runner, the Nexus system, sixes are, are Kabbalistic golems, robots. Uh, imbued with human characteristics. Uh, Smurfette from the Smurfs is a lump of clay brought to life by Gargamel. Uh, she would be uh, qualified as a Kabbalistic golem. Uh, the, the movie you mentioned earlier, uh, it's interesting, it's a German expressionist film called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where Caesar is a somnambulist, and uh, certainly he is human, but he takes on golem-like features where the robot is trying to act human uh, the sonamulist is actually trying to act like a machine. It's a robot. Uh, so that's sort of a, a golem almost in reverse, uh, which is interesting. So those are some examples in, in a cinematic uh, form um, of where the demiurge and where what, what golems are. Uh, uh, they're, they're very popular motifs in Hollywood, uh, especially when you're dealing with, um, you know, the demiurge, when, whenever you're dealing with a Gnostic film in some form or fashion, usually the archons, uh, or a demiurge type character will surface, and of course, golem making. Uh, you know, in Hollywood, I mean, there's, I mean, Blade Runner. Uh, you can look at like RoboCop would be uh, would would qualify almost as a cabalistic golem. You know, half machine, half robot. Darth Vader, you could throw in there. Fra Frankenstein's monster, my goodness, probably the most famous uh, golem out there. Uh, <laughs> dead body parts stitched together and invested with human life. Wasn't uh, wasn't there Robert a golem in trilogy of the rings uh there might be i can't recall off the top of my head uh the, the golem was the one that found the ring and it was oh, that's, like, go, that's golem no that's golem different, uh, that, different spelling okay. yeah that's different no that's okay that's a um that golem is but what's what's interesting with what, what's interesting with that character is the character of golem uh in lord of the rings is actually a hobbit uh, named smeagol and uh, th this ties into golem making because the, the golem making is a magical process. It's a form of alchemy. Um, you know, it's, it's the transmutation of, um, of, of, of an inanimate object to an animate object. And he, he himself goes through an alchemical change where he goes from this store hobbit named Smeagol into this gangle, you know, monstrous creature named Golem um, or Gollum. 
so you do have an alchemical transition with, with him, with that character, uh, which is interesting. Um, so those are just some examples of, of, uh, of, of what, what you're asking about. I'll just end on this is another one um, from, from another movie that I'm taking on, another type of golem uh, or, you know, Kabbalistic uh, uh, creature is uh, the, the character in Metropolis, Fritz Lang, is the automaton, uh, Hell uh, is her name. Um, she's a robot um, who actually gets the personality of another character. They actually transfer uh, the characteristics of another uh, character in the movie called Maria. Um, they transfer her appearance and likeness to the uh, robot. Uh, that's very interesting. So those are just some examples of um, what you're asking about. And uh, it's a popular subject, no question. <clears throat> okay, yeah, Rob, well, since, since uh, you just brought up uh, Metropolis and, and these uh, robotic women, uh, you know, might as well get, get into another sample of that same theme that you bring up in cinema symbolism too is uh, the, the, you know, really disturbing movie uh, Stepford Wives. Well, this is right. This, this ties into, um, this ties into Metropolis. Mm -hmm. Um, The, the Stepford Wives and Metropolis are, are linked um, because these are both dark visions of the Pygmalion uh, myth. And in, in Metropolis, I'll get to Stepford Rides, it's in, in, in Metropolis, uh, this is a movie I'm taking on actually in Cinema Symbolism 3, and I actually get into the Stepford Wives because they are, they are linked. Uh, in, in, in Metropolis, um, there was this woman named Hell, and she was the love interest of two men. One is Rotwang, the mad inventor, um, the alchemist, and the other is this demiurge character known as uh, Joe, Joe Friederson. He's the demiurge of Metropolis. And they both love this woman, and she ultimately dies, and Rotwang makes this robot of her. Um, and it's, it's the Pygmalion myth, uh, which is uh, the Pygmalion myth- mythology is the guy um, sees, sees a beautiful woman, and she's the most beautiful woman she's ever seen, um, and no woman compares to her, and he can't have her, so he cre- creates a statue of her um, that he falls in love with. Um, and the mythology is uh, different than it ends in the movies. The movies always end uh, tragically. Um, in the mythology, Aphrodite actually sees his love as genuine um, and sees how beautiful the statue is. Um, and the, the, the character is always worshiping, worshiping Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love and beauty. Um, and she, heeds, she hears his, his prayers um, and she grants them and she turns the statue into um, a, a real woman. Um, so the Pygmalion myth ha- ends happily. Um, this is not the case in Metropolis where uh, Joe Frederson and Rotwang uh, transfer this other woman's characteristics, this woman named Maria, who is the young lover of the hero uh, named uh, Freighter uh, in the thing. She, she's sort of like the, the working class liberator. Um, her, her name Maria is, a, if you watch the movie, there's a lot of Christian allegory uh, in the film. It's a very Gnostic movie. Um, her name is designed to conjure the Virgin Mary. And in fact, when she first appears on the screen, uh, she, she appears with a, whole, a host of children uh, conjuring the Madonna and child imagery. Um, but, but what they do is they take her appearance and likeness and they transfer it onto this robot and they send her out to destroy uh, 
um, where the real Maria is a loving peace, you know, peace worker trying to unite the lower classes with the upper classes. A uh, hell takes on the appearance of Maria. Um, and there's a lot of symbolism surrounding it with the horror of Babylon, Babylon the Great, where she becomes this destructive figure. So it's the Pygmalion myth, only that one doesn't end happily. Uh, and this, of course, is echoed in the Stepford Wives. It's, it's, the same, it's the same mythology where the women, it's, it's, it's an allegory of the women's rights movement where the women, um, it's the early 1970s and, and the, the, they move, the couple moves, I can't remember who played the husband, the, the wife is played by Catherine Ross and they move to this pastoral town outside of New York City and um, it's, it's in the middle of women's rights issues, abortion, things like that. And all the women are only interested, the, the women of the other husbands are only interested in cooking and cleaning and serving their husbands and she can't quite figure this out. And well, the dark secret is of the town is that the, the husbands are murdering the, the wives and replacing them with robots. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of the Pygmalion mythology all over again, only very nightmarish. And uh, the, 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 the automatons, the, the robots are a weird blend. The, the robotic women are this weird blend of uh, 1950s housewives. Uh, think Ozzie and Harriet meets 1970s porn stars. Um, so it's really this darker version of the Pygmalion motif where the actual women are being murdered and being replaced by, this, by these robots who only care about pleasing their husbands. Uh, so that's really the mythology going on, or some of the mythology going on, both in Metropolis and later seen in uh, The Stepford Wives. Yeah, I, that, that step, uh, both those movies are great, but, you know, the Stepford Wives one, you know, like the one scene with the, where she, uh, Catherine Ross stabs the one in the stomach with the knife, and it just uh, uh, yeah, sh- short circuits the robot, and she just sits there dumping the coffee on, on the floor. Yeah, that that was really a uh, yeah, v- very creepy scene. But there's um. You know, some some of the other really scary, uh, suspenseful movies that that you mentioned in the in in cinema symbolism too are just really appropriate uh, movies to delve into these. like unconscious type of um, symbols, uh, motifs that you know most people you know, probably don't want to really think about because they are uh, unnerving. But you know, you, know, you do, do draw our attention to uh, some of these uh, symbols found in. Uh, Jacob's Ladder. Uh, yeah, that, that was a really uh, symbolic movie. Well, right. I mean, it's 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 a movie that it's it's one of those movies that walks the thin line of alchemy and Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. Is 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 the guy waking up? Is he becoming conscious, or is he transitioning um, from mm-hmm. matter to spirit? Um, that's really one of those fine line uh, type of movies. 
Um, it's a good movie. Uh, it has, it's sort of a homage, almost a tribute to the CIA's MK Ultra program. Um, but it's one of those movies where you really never know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you know, is he, you know, where is he? Is he alive or dead? It's what, if, if you watch the movie, I, I believe it came out in 1990 or 91. Uh, it's really the movie that is the basis of the sixth sense, uh, which came a few years later, but it, it's, it's a good movie. Um, it's scary. A, a lot of the images of the demons come from paintings done by an artist named Francis Bacon. Uh, you want to check him out. That's not the Francis Bacon, the Rosicrucian, Queen Elizabeth character is another painter actually with the same name named Francis Bacon. If you look at his artwork, you'll see the inspiration for that. Um, it's, it's one of those movies where it's, again, it's a fine line where is he having this epiphany revelation or is he alchemically transition transitioning? You can kind of argue it both ways. I ultimately came down that it was more of an alchemical movie where he was transitioning. He was going through a change um, from matter to spirit. Uh, he was abandoning the material world for the spirit world. So he was going through this alchemical transition um, is what I ultimately concluded. But you, you could argue, also argue it as a Gnostic film um, that he's awakening to that. Um, but I, I saw it more as al- alchemical. Um, but it's, it's a good movie. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, what, 20, almost 30 years old now. But it holds up. Um, I, I like the movie very much. Uh, it's one of those ones that does kind of keep you guessing um, as you know, you're trying to figure out what's real, what isn't, um, what's dream, what isn't. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, you'll, you'll find uh, the fingerprints of this movie. Um, you know, it's, you know, you'll find it like in uh, the sixth sense where uh, re- reflects it. There was a movie that came out in 2001 um, that had to do with like dream versus reality, uh, which is a movie that I'm taking on in cinema symbolism three. I won't get too much into it, uh, but it's a movie that, that I, 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 I've had a bit of a polar shift on. Um, is a movie called Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise. It came out in 2001. Um, I, I'm working on that now for cinema symbolism three. Uh, I'll just mention it in this in this vein was um, I've always I always believed up until I saw this movie um, that you know we all I've been asked I think I've been asked about it by you guys also is like nine eleven movies nine eleven predictor movies closer to the event you get you know you get the movies like the Matrix um, and Fight Club um, and I always held those out as sort of like sort of the premier nine eleven predictor movies um, I've had a change of opinion on that. Um, those movies are are very 9/11 uh, uh, predictive, uh, but they are very nihilistic. Also, um, to me, I- I've had a change on this. I think Vanilla Sky now is the ultimate 9/11 movie. Um, if you've never seen it, by all means, check it out. Uh, you're you're going to want to wait till that very end scene rolls around, um, which is very touching. Uh, but but to me, I- I've had a bit of a polar shift on this. Um, I would say now that uh, Vanilla Sky is probably the ultimate 9/11 movie. And, and this is, again, another movie that blurs dream and reality, um, which you can clearly see uh, in movies like Jacob's Ladder. So uh, a very seminal movie. Uh, I like it as well, both Jacob's Ladder and uh, Sixth Sense and Vanilla Sky. Yeah, well, it, you know, when I was growing up, I always you know, watched the Saturday afternoon, you know, all those you know, scary movies, uh, the man with the X-ray eyes, and all all that stuff on in, in the afternoon, and and then the evening. There's you know the chilly Billy shows, and 
you know, get to watch all the Christopher Lee Dracula movie. Uh, just I just grew up on a, a lot of that stuff. But yeah, just it, it, it wasn't until uh, you know, I looked at all the different classifications of uh, you know the, like different motifs and. Uh, genres within the horror group that, you know, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, I just, yeah, there's really a, a lot more to the horror genre than just the uh, Freddy and Jason slasher uh, stuff. Uh, you know, you do take it into uh, like the uh, break it down to the um, Discord uh, character, uh, mythological uh, character Discord that does play a role in the uh, Friday the 13th series. Well, right. This is just a minor talking point. Um, the 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 horror movies, I mean, this is something I talked about more in cinema symbolism I mean, with the vampire motif, Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, uh, they are all surrounded with esoteric symbolism. Um, you know, and I grew up also watching, you know, uh, what was it? Ghost Host. That's the one we had here in Baltimore, watching all the old Vincent Price movies and the yeah. old <laughs> universal movies and things like that. Um, I love that. Yeah. The, the, um, well, the, the Scordier is a goddess who's a, uh, hell, hell wrecker. And um, I got into the Betsy Palmer um, evil mother archetype. That was in the first cinema movie, uh, cinema book I wrote. But the um, the this uh, the Scordia was something I took on um, in in the section on the uh, feminine aspects of of movie uh, sacred feminine aspects. And uh, the the Scordia character is like a hellraiser, like a homewrecker. And I presented three instances where this archetype uh, was prevalent in film. Um, the first was Basic Instinct uh, with uh, Sharon Stone, where she just wreaks havoc on the masculine. Um, that, that, that's a, a great example of seeing this uh, mythological character in action. The, the second movie is the destruction of the nuclear family. Uh, this was another Adrian Lyne movie. Uh, he directed uh, Jacob's Ladder, which is called uh, Fatal Attraction, where the um, Alex character played by uh, uh, that's um, Glenn Close, um, his sole purpose is to destroy the uh, nuclear family. Very interesting symbolism uh, going on with her, with her costuming. If you pay attention to this, you pay attention to the movie. Um, she's a schizoid, a split personality. It's the good girl, the bad girl, or both. Um, you know, she's constantly reverting back and forth between the good girl, the bad girl, or both. Um, if you pay attention to the movie, uh, pay attention to this. Her costuming, it's always black, white, or black and white, always. Um, symbolizing this uh, polarization of good, bad, or both. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, the other one, which is uh, Polanski's Repulsion, and this is the destruction of the self. Um, this is where the woman descends into total abject madness. Um, so th th this was uh, three archetypes, uh, an archetype that I presented in three separate movies that I thought were really prime examples of seeing how this mythology filters into film. Um, and this was sort of a continuation from the first movie book I wrote, Cinema Symbolism Part One, where I talked about the role of the evil sort of vindictive mother figure uh, in film, um, which is very prevalent. Um, you know, you have her with the Betsy Palmer character from Jason, you know, with Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th. Of course, we have the mommy dearest. 
Um, I mean, we had the woman in, in uh, the, the, the mother, the helicopter mom in uh, Carrie. Um, th this is a, this is a character that turns up all, all, all the time, the manipulative sort of scheming mother uh, figure, um, very popular in Hollywood. So the, uh, the, this was something again, I talked about in the first movie book and the, it was sort of a carryover into the second movie book. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it just, it just goes to show you, it's a great example of how, you know, how these movies just draw on so many different subjects, whether it be ancient mythology, religion, comparative religion, mysticism, Kabbalah, archetypal imagery. I mean, I'm always stressing this. <clears throat> that these uh, movie makers really paint from a broad palette. Um, I mean, it's not just one thing. I mean, it's not just a symbol in a movie. I mean, you can deal with the plot, the plot turns, the characters, the costuming, the music, the, the, the actors and actresses that are actually cast um, in, in movies uh, can, can figure into this as well. Uh, this is something I call cult casting, uh, which I thought at first was somewhat uh, limited, I've since discovered that this is more prevalent than I originally thought. So um, when these guys make these movies, when these Hollywood uh, major studios put out these blockbusters, believe me, they are painting uh, their pictures from a multicolored, multifaceted palette. Make no mistake. Okay. Yeah, you know, the, you know, your, your little section on, uh, the the movie Repulsion. I you, know, you did a great job of analyzing the disintegration of of personality within a confined space. Yeah, you know, we also you know we can also probably get into seeing the same thing happen to Jack Nicholson at the Overlook Hotel later in the show. But you know, j just in this one section where you have three you know, really good examples of this discordia uh, figure found in movies, but you also make a you know, little uh, calm comment that, I, I thought it it, it was uh, hilarious, um, but the the more you think about it, it, it you know, your example is perfect. It, it, it's you know, a, a, another Discordia figure is you know, the mom in Throw Mama from the the, the train. Oh, sure. Most people aren't going to think of that one. Right. I mean, she's wreaking havoc on her son. Uh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Litz, uh, a, a great example of this. It's, it's the Hellraiser figure. It's the female yeah. destroyer figure, um, you know, whose, whose sole purpose is to destroy uh, or, call, or wreak havoc. I mean, discord. I mean, that's what she's sowing. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you can find... Um, these characters, these motifs, they are not, they are not limited to these, you know, sort of um, dramatic Oscar winning performances. I mean, you will find these in comedies uh, galore. I mean, the, 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 the comedy um, was the subject of Shakespeare. I mean, so you will find the trickster in the comedy. You will find the Discordia figure in the comedy. Uh, you will find uh, you know the the hero, the the the, the you know hero, you know the, the female 
the heroine uh, in, in the uh, comedy. Uh, you will find, you know, th th these these archetypes aren't just limited to the, you know, to these deep thinking Gnostic Hollywood films or, you know, more, you know, morose film films. Uh, you will, I mean, I talk in cinema symbolism part one uh, about, you know, so, you know, the, you know, some of the characters in movies like Caddyshack, you know, or nine to five, uh, which are, are Ghostbusters, uh, which are very archetypal dealing with the houses of the Zodiac, um, the water signs and the fire signs. So, the point I'm making is, you know, I mean, this isn't limited to, you know, just these sort of dramatic films or these sort of, you know, uh, horror movies or anything like that. Uh, comedies uh, also incorporate uh, these same archetypal figures. Uh, make no mistake about that as well. Yeah, and, you know, Robbie, you know, you mentioned that, you know, they just, you know, these characters appear throughout all types of uh, genres, uh, but you know, there's all. You also draw our, our attention to uh, some directors just keep going back uh, to this de developing the same theme. Yeah. It might be presented in uh, d different ways. Uh, in you know, you know, say maybe a couple movies uh, the director did close together, and you know you have uh, samples in um, the, uh, Roman Polanski's movies that 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 you bring up, and you know, uh, Repulsion's one, and uh, you know a little bit about uh, Rosemary's Baby. What what was uh, you know? Polanski uh, uh, working on those two like uh, late sixties movies. Uh, you know, they seem to be a couple you know premiere uh, horror movies as well. Well, well, Polanski with they're not they're not really related. The stories aren't related in any way. Uh, Polanski, my understanding of it is is Polanski Polanski did Repulsion, uh, which was sort of a re, an, a, echoing Hitchcock's Psycho. Mm -hmm. uh, that that was sort of a female take on Psycho was was what his motivation with Repulsion was. Uh, Rosemary's Baby and they. they I believe Repulsion came out in 63, 64, I want to say. I, I might be mistaken, but I, I'd have to look. Rosemary's Baby is 68, um, and that was a uh, based on a novel by Ira Levin. Um, Ira Levin also wrote uh, Stepford Wives, uh, same, same author. Um, and Rosemary's Baby is definitely, I mean, you, you have a lot going on. I mean, it, it, it has uh, a decidedly alchemical storyline with it. Um, this is something I'm getting into Cinema Symbolism 3 with. I, talk, I talked about it in my earlier books, um, mainly in, in regards to the Mokata uh, character. Mm -hmm. um, this is the, in Rosemary's Baby, um, this is the Sidney Blackmere uh, character, who's the black magician. Um, he's the Aleister Crowley analog uh, in Rosemary's Baby, who's the head of the black magic cult, who is conjuring Satan to impregnate her to birth the Antichrist. Um, and the, it's an interesting play on his name. It, it ties into a character um, that it, it, what's funny is 
the novel was written years earlier, uh, but the movie also came out in 1968. Uh, it was a novel written by a character named uh, Dennis Wheatley, uh, who moved in the same, so he was a spy master in World War II. Uh, he worked, moved in the same circles as uh, Roald Dahl, who wrote Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I should say. And uh, Dennis Wheatley, and, and, and of course Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond stories, Wheatley wrote a story called The Devil Rides Out. Um, and in that, in that story, you have a character called Mercada, or Mokada, um, and uh, who plays him? Charles Gray plays him. And, and the Mokada character is an Aleister Crowley analog. He's in charge of the, you know, witchcraft coven, the black magic cult. Uh, there's a real famous scene in the movie. Have you ever seen The Devil Rides Out? Again, released the same year as Rosemary's Baby, 68. Um, where the Mokata Crowley analog summons the goat of Mendes at a Sabbath. Uh, and you want to watch that scene. That's probably the most famous scene in the movie. But then you have Rosemary's Baby. It's it's the same name. Uh, the black magician character in, in Devil Rides Out is called Mokata. And in Rosemary's Baby, he's called, I think, Mercada or, or Merchada or Mercada. It's, it's the same name almost phonetically. Um, and that's an homage to this earlier Aleister Crowley analog um, played by Charles Gray uh, in Rosemary's Baby. I believe it's Sidney Blackmer uh, who plays him. And his wife, of course, is Minnie, uh, played by Ruth Gordon, who won the uh, Best Supporting Actress there. So um, th that's a lot of the symbolism going on inside uh, uh, that that movie um, with, with Rosemary's Baby. There is also an alchemical uh, storyline. This is something I'm doing in Cinema Symbolism 3, where it's really a transition of the Mia, Mia Farrow character um, she does go through an alchemical change. She doesn't change physically, um, but it is a change nevertheless. Uh, the alchemical movies, I, when, I, when I use that, I'm not talking about movies cha about changing base metal into gold, unless I'm talking Goldfinger, uh, the James Bond movie. But when I talk about an alchemical movie, it's about a character who undergoes a transition uh, one way or the other. Mostly they're negative. Um, they usually start out as positive and go to negative. It's almost always the case. So it is a, it is a change. Um, it's a transmutation. It's a, you know, a transmogrification. Um, and, in, and in Rosemary's Baby, she just basically goes from this sort of uh, young woman who wants to be a mother uh, to going from, from that uh, to the mother of the Antichrist and accepting it, um, you know, basically welcoming it. Um, so she does go through this uh, change of hating uh, the witches, uh, the witchcraft coven, and her husband, and in the end, she joins them. Um, so, so there is this alchemical transition that builds. It, it's it's a great movie. I love Rosemary's Baby. Um, it's very creepy. Um, it has a lot of unique symbolism in it. Um, although I don't think it was intentional. Um, the 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 movie was filmed, of course, at the Dakota Apartments um, in uh, in New York City. There. And of course, uh, the Dakota was where John Lennon was shot uh, and killed in 1980. He was living there. You shot right out in front of it. Um, and if you ever watch the movie again, I, I'm not going to give it away. And I know you guys haven't seen it, so we won't talk about it anymore. But if you act, when you get around to watching the Tom Cruise movie, Vanilla Sky, um, the movie actually opens at the Dakota apartments. And it's very symbolic um, because it's foreshadowing the sort of negative uh, reality of uh, this nightmarish reality that the Tom Cruise character ultimately uh, finds himself in very, very similar to the nightmarish uh, scenario that uh, Rosemary Woodhouse finds herself in. And of course the tragedy of uh, the John Lennon assassination. So um, very symbolic movie, a uh, very important movie when you, when you look at it uh, historically. Okay. And, and you know, another 
Rosemary's baby is uh, chilling. Um, But another great late night, uh, Saturday night viewing movie that I've always enjoyed, but but it's not there's uh, yeah a horror element to it a uh, little unnerving and comedic as well but we have to get get into one one of the all-time greatest cult classics is they live and, and you have some nice uh, analysis of uh, uh, of that movie in some symbolism too. Uh, what what's your take on the this uh, top uh, science fiction movie? Right, I have that. I have that in a chapter in the book called the uh, in the um, cinema symbolism two. Um, you could put this as a Gnostic movie almost. And there is this overlap between, I have it in the chapter on the Illuminati in film. Um, I characterize it as an Illuminati movie. Um, but there is this overlap between Gnosticism and um, the, the, these Illuminati pictures. It has, the role, it has to do with the role of the hidden puppet master, which is always the demiurge, which is the creator of this phony reality who's trying to keep people in, in you know, suppressed, oppressed. Um, and, they, and they live... Um, it, well, I mean, you know, it, it's the whole idea that, you know, you're being controlled. It's a, it's a mind control movie, um, you know, and to be obsessed with materialism uh, and just basically to, to live this mind numbingly boring, thoughtless life. Um, and of course, it, it's it's it's, you know, I called I called the space aliens uh, in the book. I was actually it's funny you mentioned this movie because. I was actually, I'm writing about this again in, in Cinema Symbolism 3. I'm actually correcting myself. I said in, in the book, in Cinema Symbolism 2, I called the aliens, the skull-faced aliens. I called them demiurge-like aliens. I said I should have just called them what they were, which is archons. Uh, they're the henchmen. They're the people, uh, you know, who are there to keep mankind asleep, to keep them unconscious, to keep them stasis, in static, uh, in a, in a, you know, in this, in this slumber, uh, which is what they do. They're using the, you know, hypnotizing billboards, the subliminal messaging uh, to keep mankind unconscious. And, uh, you know, I, it, it really does remind me of this Illuminati paradigm that you hear in the conspiracy world of keeping people asleep, keeping them numb, uh, you know, keeping them you know, unconscious while the puppet masters pull the strings from behind the curtains. But there is this Gnostic uh, mix over crossover with this. Um, and uh, you know, where these, these Illuminati films look, you know, take on these, you know, resemble these Gnostic films because of the whole idea of the henchmen, keeping people down, keeping people ignorant, keeping people asleep, you know, the hidden puppet master would be the demiurge. So, so there is this overlap with the two. Um, so with they live, I mean, clearly you have, you know, the Illuminati conspiracy, keeping people asleep, keeping them unconscious, keeping them obsessed with matter, with materialism, uh, you know, which you see with the TV programming. Um, I mean, the one guy says it, he said, you know, it's this mind control signal that's being put out to render people asleep, to render them a consciousness. Of course, this is in the conspiracy world, the modus operandi of the Illuminati. And, and what I really like is, um, and this ties into more of the Gnostic element of it, is the, um, the hero's name, which is Roddy Roddy Piper. Um, 
you know, his name is Nada, um, which is Spanish for nothing. Um, and, and, and that conjures a Gnostic philosopher named Basilides. Um, and his Gnostic take was the only way to achieve the Godhead is through willed nothingness. Um, and the only way to break the spell is through nothingness. I mean, I thought that was just really an interesting name to give to this guy with Nada, which was nothingness. Basically saying you have to almost will yourself into this um, nothingness state um, to be nothing, and which is what he is. He's a nobody. Um, to break this, uh, you know, hypnotizing spell. I mean, this is exactly the theology uh, that Basilides preached. He said, basically, you have to become nothing to escape the world of the Demiurge, to escape the world of the Archons. So I thought that was a really, really fascinating name uh, to give to the Roddy Roddy Piper character. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very interesting movie. Um, it's John Carpenter. He's always a good one to talk about. His movies, um, you know, are, are usually multi-layered. Uh, and I really like, I really love Carpenter. I mean, I love the first Halloween movie. I mean, I think that's just a really classic, you know, you know, movie archetypal movie that really returned Halloween to its dark pagan origins. Uh, for, and for that, I'm thankful for, uh, I, he did a great job with that. So no, um, you know, they live is a movie that I took on in cinema symbolism too. It's in the Illuminati, uh, chapter, um, which I do consider an Illuminati movie, uh, akin to like eyes wide shut, but, I, um, I, you know, you could definitely see some Gnostic crossover with it. Uh, that's that's no doubt about that as well. Okay. Well, yeah. And since we're get, getting into the the Illuminati, you know, there's angels and demons and the Da Vinci Code, and who who is this group of you know, global elitists? Well, the historical Illuminati doesn't exist. Um, they're no longer around. That was an invention of a Jesuit priest named Adam Weishaupt. Um, it was part of the Counter-Reformation um, to basically use mysticism and use Freemasonry uh, to lure Protestants back to the Pope in Rome, uh, which is, again, the modus operandi of the Counter-Reformation, was to use the tactics of the enemy as your own tactics. Um, you know, this is spycraft 101, essentially. Um, to, to, to achieve a desired re- as a result, the ends justify the means as, as it is. Um, uh, the, the historical Illuminati of Weishaupt um, is gone away with the dodo. Um, uh, but, you know, it lingers. Uh, you know, the, the, the world of conspiracy, um, you know, you had the William Morgan affair here in the United States. Where you had this sort of revival of the Illuminati scare um, of Robeson, you know, of the Federalists, essentially. Um, of John Quincy Adams, uh, the, the sixth president. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, it, it comes, but it really, it, you know, it sort of lingers. Um, people have always believed that there was this secret cabal of Masons who sort of pulled the strings, although it doesn't seem to exist anymore. If it does, I haven't seen it. No Mason believes in it. Um, the term is used loosely. When you say the word to me, when you say the word the Illuminati to me, I think of the, you know, the... Um, the the the, the shop group, uh, the the sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for, the um, uh, the firebrand Freemasonry that was part of the you know the the, the extreme enlightenment let's say that um, the, of 1776 that really no longer exists anymore that that's what the term means to me it is a it is a term now used um, with much broader strokes to sort of re- re- refer to any sort of a global elite group. Um, 
you know, maybe social engineers, things like that, which do exist, uh, clearly. Um, so if you're going to use it in that terminology, you know, that's okay. I don't really have a problem with it. It's not what I think of when, when the term is thrown at me. But if you're going to use it as a term to, you know, as a social, you know, global elitist, social engineers, yeah, I'll go along with that. Uh, but like I said, just for me personally, I think of the uh, Masonic, uh, you know, firebrand, uh, you know, really harsh enlightenment group, uh, which probably by around the early 1800s was no longer functioning. Okay. And, yeah, in the movie Angels and Demons, they are presented as, um, an interesting, uh, adversary to uh, Tom Hanks and you know they're, they're they're all involved with the scientific you know uh, goings on at CERN you know how, how do how do we interpret this uh, preoccupation with science is it is going against of faith or you know what's a little deeper meaning with the importance of CERN as the uh, uh, object that brings together both sides in this you know, battle to you know pre- prevent a, a cataclysmic event. Well, uh, I don't really see any nexus because the Dan Brown stuff is pure fiction. Um, the Illuminati of him is just made up. It's fantasy. Um, it, it's pure fiction. It's, it, it doesn't exist. Um, you, you know, and it, so, I mean, it's the, the Illuminati of the Dan Brown's Angels and, Demon is, and Demons is just fiction. Um, it doesn't exist. Um, it's an interesting adversary, like you say, but, uh, you know, the the whole thing, I mean, you know, it's, it's just made up. Um, it's just, you know, it's imagination. It's really nothing more than that. Um, CERN itself, um, you know, well, I mean, that's real. Yeah. CERN is real. They, they entered into the, the conspiracy world with the whole notion of antimatter, and, you know, is the Hadron Collider somehow creating or distorting reality? Um, that's arguable and that's certainly possible. Um, you know, that's something I don't mind talking about. That's where you get into things like the Mandela effect. Um, is this a product of CERN's experimentation? Is this, you know, merging realities? Um, and when you get into parallel dimensions and parallel realities, um, I mean, th- this is allowed for. Um, I mean, Einstein al- allows for it. Um, there is a lot of Buckminster Fuller allows for it. There, there is the notion of a parallel universe or a parallel dimension or parallel realities, plural, um, scientifically is plausible. Uh, so that, that's possible. Um, and then, you know, you get into the whole idea of, well, if they're experimenting, is this producing some sort of ripple in the space time continuum? Is this somehow merging realities? Um, you know, this, this to me is fascinating uh, with the Mandela effect. And like I said, this was something that I've actually talked about recently on other shows um, because I've experienced it firsthand myself. And um, 
you know, I think it is documentable that people, I mean, you know, there are, there are things that are seem out of place that, you know, my, you know, you know, maybe some of it you can chalk up the bad memories or things like that, but certainly some people remember it one way and some people remember it the other way and swear to it. Um, and that's what makes it so interesting is, I mean, that seems to lend credence to it, um, is, is the notion of multiple realities. So that certainly is plausible. That is not fiction. Um, and, and that's always uh, fascinating mm -hmm. to me. Well, <laughs> during the... Um um, uh, you know, many season of the the X Files that came out a couple of years ago, they, they devoted a whole uh, episode to the Mandela effect. It, it's, yeah. it, it, it is something very. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I never saw the X Files episode, but yeah, I mean, it is definitely, like I said, something that. I've documented myself. I mean, I've, I've had instances of this. Um, so, no, I do believe it's uh, a real phenomenon and uh, mm -hmm. it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I, I will come back to that <clears throat> in, uh, too, but, um, um, you know, we've done, c covered a lot of, the horror films that you know, so, so many of us have you know, just really enjoyed over the, the years. Um, I know I, I have, uh, you know, Christopher Lee always stands out as uh, one of the great figures uh, from that genre, but you know, let's uh, you know, cinema symbolism uh, to uh, doesn't just focus only uh, on uh, horror movies. You also have a um, terrific analysis of Western movies and. Probably uh, a lot of the listeners would have to say the good and bad, the ugly has to rank up there, you know, one or two as you know, the the top Western movie, and you know, break the, that's movie down for us and it's really between three characters and you know they go through this lengthy movie to uh yeah when you say it's almost like a symbiotic movie or characters th throughout the movie uh, trying to get away from each other but they you know keep keep uh crossing uh paths until they get to the end, and you make a lot of really detailed observations that really put the movie into much better focus for me. So, uh, you know, let's hear a little bit of your analysis on this you know, tr truly great movie. 
Well, the good, the good, the bad, the ugly is one of my all-time favorite movies, if not my all, my all-time favorite movie. I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, that movie, Sergio Leone. I mean, it's just an absolutely fantastic movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I talk about it in the context that it's akin to Christian Kabbalah um, and astrology and astro astrological archetypes um, is really the key to unlocking that movie. Um, it's 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 Christian. Um, but you know, when you're dealing with Christianity, you are dealing with astrology and, you know, comparative religion. Um, and you, you will see this, this is clearly, um, Leone knows what he's doing and he, it needs to be pointed out. I'll do this good, the band, the ugly, but he did two other Western movies that came before it, which were a fistful of dollars and a few dollars more. Um, and they hint at the same symbolism, the same Christian, you know, motif, astrological light versus dark, good versus evil, uh, symbolism. Um, so we know, we know he's playing around with it cause he, he did it before, but by the time he gets around to the good, the bad and the ugly, this is where he kind of really has perfected it. Um, I mean, it clearly just on its base level. Um, I mean, it's, it's a religious allegory of God versus the devil where the God figure, uh, you know, the Jesus Christ figure is uh, blondie. I mean, it's the blonde hair, blue eyed sun God, uh, who, who is the good, right? I mean, that's the Clint Eastwood character. Um, and of course, he's in conflict with the devil, which is the bad. This is Levon Cleef. Uh, I mean, you know, Levon Cleef always dressed in black. You know, the devil runs the death camp, uh, the, the bad guy, the devil. And what they, what is ultimately a, a, a about is the battle for humankind soul, uh, the soul of humanity, which is the ugly. Uh, this is the uh, Eli Wallach character, and it's ugly. He's the ugly because he represents mankind. It's mankind because of the fall of Eden, uh, the original sin, the casting out. So it's a state of ugliness. So the whole movie is a play between God and the devil, the good, the bad, trying to lure the ugly mankind to his side. Uh, so it's this re religious struggle. Uh, that's essentially what's what's going on on there. Um, there are some astrological motifs, of course, when you're dealing with Christianity um, and you're dealing with Jesus, this is inevitable. Where the 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 the, the um, you know you're dealing with the the house of the zodiac here, where the Christ figure would be you know the Jesus would be the sun, so the ruling uh, house of the sun is of course Leo, uh, and then you have uh, the opposite house of Leo is Aquarius. Uh, this would be the ugly character uh, who's always running around looking for water. Uh, when when you when you pay attention uh, to the movie and you watch it again, the the Eli Wallach character is constantly searching for pitchers of water, uh, denoting Aquarius's water pitcher. And then of course Scorpio. This would be the lead and Cleef character. This would be set in the Egyptian mythology, which is always Scorpio. Uh, this would be the Judas Iscariot figure. Um, and these these are the set signs of the zodiac. The the uh, transfixed. Uh, the fixed signs of the zodiac. There's one other Taurus uh, that doesn't show up. Um, so, so that that that's very um, interesting. Um, and then there's a, a scene at the end there. I don't want to spoil it. I'm not going to get into it because I prefer people to read uh, the, the the book, um, you know, to discover this. But there's there's a very interesting scene at the very end of it that plays this out, um, where they're actually standing on the wheel of the zodiac, and they're actually standing in their exact same uh, stations as they would appear on the wheel of the Zodiac, bearing all the symbolism out. Um, there's also something else that's very interesting in this, and it is, it is a religious Christian Gnostic theme. Um, and and I, I thought this was very interesting. This was pointed out by a friend of mine uh, whose show I've done a couple times uh, named Miguel Connor. 
uh, he pointed this out to me, so I, I, I got to give him credit for this. I'm actually talking about it in Cinema Symbolism 3, and I, I just really like this. Though. The whole movie is this, this pursuit of material wealth, gold, right? Uh, and and it's, it's uh, a treasure hunt movie where they're searching for this material wealth. And, of course, th this is one of the lessons of the Gnostics is don't, don't pursue material wealth, pursue spiritual wealth. And I, I liked it where, at the end, when the Eli Wallach character, Mankind, is running around in circles looking for wealth, um, while the ecstasy of gold is playing in the background. And, and I thought this was just really, really fascinating. You know, he's running in circles looking for the gold, looking for his wealth. Um, and again, the ecstasy of gold, that memorable music is, is playing in the background. And of course, he finds the grave. Um, and, and what's the name on the grave where the, the gold is not? Um, the gold is in the grave of Arch Stanton. You know, Arch, and then you take the last name of his last name, Arch Stanton Archon. Um, you know, denoting the agents of the demiurge, which are, of course, is to never pursue material wealth, to be trapped in, you know, to get nothing, basically, when to keep mankind down. And that's, of course, why the gold isn't there. Um, it, it's, it's a red herring. He's pursuing the wrong thing. He should be pursuing the nothing grave, which is unknown, uh, which is signifying the unknowable godhead of Gnosticism, the monad, which is unknowable. So, so that, that's, where the, that, that's where the actual gold is. That's the spiritual wealth. I thought that was really just a fascinating uh, scene there uh, that really plays out this sort of Gnostic uh, take on it that the, the spiritual wealth is in the unknown God and the, 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 uh, the wealth that you're looking for, the actual physical wealth is in the Archon grave, which leads to nothingness. I mean, he winds up hanging from the tree at the end. I thought that was really a great Christian Gnostic lesson there at the very end of this. So a lot, a lot going on in uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It's a movie that I uh, break down in Cinema Symbolism 2. And as I said, I'm working on Cinema Symbolism 3 right now. So it definitely gets an honorable mention uh, in my chapter on Gnosticism in Hollywood. Okay, uh, Rob, um, the uh, analysis that you just gave with the wrap-up of The Good, and The Bad, The Ugly just you know, really gives a, a, a flavor of the just uh, penetrating insights that you know you provide in you know, your your books and you know, it just really puts in a pers it gives the audience a new perspective on. Yeah, in these movies that we've seen so many times, and you know, a lot of times we might just take uh, just take for granted. Oh, yeah, okay, it's you know, uh, you know basically a uh, you know good, good versus evil type movie, and that's it. But you know, as we keep listening to your an uh, analysis of some of these movies, you, know, you do make a very convincing case that these stories are actually going back even farther to uh, ancient history. And it's, it's just really uh, an insightful uh, book where you just read it, and it's like, wow! You know, I I just never really thought of th this movie in 
that that manner. So, you know, I, I you know, do want to give you and the listeners that review. You know, I I, I never thought of some of these things, and I, it, you know, you do make a really good case that these directors were looking even further back into time. Well, right. It's a, it's a lot of archetypal imagery. Um, right. I mean, and it's, you know, it's, it's, you go back, it's the sun, the moon, the Zodiac, the stars. I mean, this is the basis of so many movies, religions, fairy tales. Right. Uh, right. You know, that's where a lot of this is really filtering down through. Yeah. It's it, it just going back to you know, the, the, the like dawn of storytelling it, it, and it, you know, you do just a, a terrific job. In you know, your your books on you know, giving us that that new perspective, and you know, you know since we're still on uh, westerns, uh, you know, you know, John, John Wayne is. You know, major figure. Do, uh, do you want to talk about it, any of his uh, uh, movies that uh, you know, uh, fit into some of these genres? Well, the, the only one that I really broke down was uh, the Red River movie because that had to do with a lot of the male archetypes, um, the Ogre Father being the main one. Um, that that's really a great example of it because you'll see this again repeating in other movies, um, and that was a western, um, and it's it's a great movie anyway. Um, it's probably one of my favorite John Wayne's. Um, so again, I you know it's it's again if you just want to see the male archetype, um, a lot of them, a lot of the male archetypes, check out uh, the Red River movie, and you can read the book um, where I get into you know what they're representing. Okay. And- Okay, to r- return to uh, you know the h- horror genre, um, make a lot of interesting comparisons between uh, the the Overlook Hotel and the. Crimson Peak movie. I I, I haven't seen it. I, 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 after reading the section on Crimson Peak, um, I think I'm going to have to uh, look for that on Netflix or something. Uh, you know, you know, rent that from, from somewhere. Uh, that that looked really interesting. Well. The The Shining is a movie that I took on in Cinema Symbolism 2, and I mentioned it briefly in uh, Cinema Symbolism Part 1, um, because there's so much going on in The Shining with repetition mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to denote this uh, repetitive cycle. Um, one of the movies that I was analyzing uh, for Cinema Symbolism 2 was the Guillermo de Toro movie called Crimson Peak, uh, which is essentially a gothic romance ghost story. Um, and it has a lot of uh, esoteric imagery in it anyway, uh, with the costuming and the sun and then the, the, the home, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, it, it has a lot of esoteric symbolism anyway. 
um, and I got about halfway through the movie, and uh, I believe it's around the halfway mark point, and there's a scene in it where the the Mia Wasikowska character named Edith Cushing goes into, she's at this haunted house, and she goes into a conspicuous green bathroom, and this ghost comes up out of the bathtub and scares the hell out of her, and she runs off. And I'm sitting there watching. I'm thinking, oh, you know, where have I seen this before? It's The Shining, of course, when he goes in room 237. And the movie um, continued on. I watched it for about another 10, 15 minutes, but the gears in my head started turning because I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, I'm I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, boy, this movie – you know, this this bathroom scene aside, I, I started thinking back to some of the earlier scenes, and I thought, my God, this movie really ties in a lot to The Shining. I mean, it almost is a remake of it. What I actually did was um, I actually stopped the movie at that point, and I put the notes aside that I had written um, on the symbolism and the costuming and the mansion and, you know, the moth, the butterfly, all that, all those motifs. And I actually started the movie over and I, I got out a fresh piece of paper. And instead I just started making comparison, comparison notes to the shining um, and how this movie paralleled the shining. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, I just couldn't believe the length um, that, that they went to to sort of replicate the shining in Crimson Peak. Um, if you've never seen Crimson Peak, um, I'm, I won't get into it. I, I have a whole flow chart in the uh, book. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if you, if, if you, um, you know, if you've seen Crimson Peak, by all means, check out the book. Cause I get into, um, it's quite astounding. The amount of parallels there are between the shining and Crimson Peak. Uh, it blew my, blew my mind away quite literally. Um, it was one of the most, fa- in fact, to this day, I think it's one of the most fascinating things that I've uncovered is the uh, uncanny parallels uh, between these two movies. And um, like I said, if you've never seen Crimson Peak, I won't get into it. But um, it was really that one scene with the green bathroom uh, that sort of tipped me off to this. And like I said, I actually stopped the movie and actually went back went back to the very beginning of it and started it over. Um, and just making notes uh, regarding the Kubrick movie and Guillermo de Toro's movie, just the parallels between them. Uh, and it really is just mind blowing, quite honestly, the, the the similarities between those two movies. And I, I can't help but think that's not intentional. So um, if you've never seen the movie, I won't get into it. But um, it's it's definitely something. Uh, if you've seen Crimson Peak and The Shining, uh, by all means, take a look at the book because um, you you're all but watching the same movies there. Um, they're they're almost the Crimson Peak is almost a total remake of uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Quite, quite fascinating. Okay, and you just mentioned you know, uh, uh, the, you know the you know, Danny goes into room two three seven and you know, Jack finds the uh, ghost lady in the bathtub and and, and you know, you calculate that. Uh, an important conversation in Crimson Peak occurs 23 minutes and seven seconds into the film. So there's the repetition of the two, three, seven, uh, a, a number uh, that, that is pretty hard to just write that off as just a coincidence. Oh no, it isn't. Um, that that's another thing that these, um, these, these filmmakers play around with is, is, is timing. 
um, when things occur in the movie. Um, that is one example. It, 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 it ties in with uh, The Shining. Um, it, 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 it's a parallel scene where um, the Scatman Crothers character in The Shining is explaining the horrors of 237 to Danny. And then in Crimson Peak, uh, there, there's a scene where uh, one of the characters is explaining ghosts and how to see them, and it occurs at 23 minutes, 7 seconds, which is a 237 uh, reference. But no, um, this is completely intentional. Um, there are some other great examples of this. Um, one is actually in The Shining uh, with Kubrick, um, and it has to do with uh, the, the, the ghosts, the evil ghosts sort of taking possession of uh, Jack's uh, body, you know, his soul. Um, and, of course, this occurs through alcohol. Remember, yeah, he hasn't... He hasn't had any alcohol and he starts drinking again. And of course, this is what ultimately sets him off, you know, pretty much as the contributing factor to his downfall. Um, in The Shining, uh, uh, Jack Torrance drinks uh, the whiskey, the booze, um, at 66 minutes, six seconds, 666, um, denoting, you know, the Antichrist. This is when the evil is entering him basically through the alcohol. Um, so that, that was used by Kubrick. Um, there and then you got the scene in the Crimson Peak at 23 minutes seven seconds 237, which is a, the exact parallel scene um, where Crothers, uh, where Mr. Halloran is explaining 237 to Danny. Um, there's a scene in Crimson Peak where a similar circumstance is being explained at 23 minutes seven seconds. Uh, there's another one that I liked um, that's interesting um, that occurs and I'll keep it, I'll keep the, the uh, conversation family friendly. I won't get too uh, explicit with it. Um, I'll just suffice to say that, and you, you can figure the symbolism out, um, is that the lesbian scene in Black Swan between um, Miller Kunis and Natalie Portman occurs at exactly 69 minutes into the movie. Um, you can denote the sexual symbolism with that one. No, no. Okay, yeah, that was uh, pretty self-explanatory. Self-explanatory, but intentional. Yeah. Okay, and uh, you know, you know, Rob, when um, when we had Bill Mann as our guest, oh, one month ago, three, three, four weeks ago. Uh, he, he was really knowledgeable about uh, history and art. Uh, he spent a lot of time discussing um, Poussin's um, uh, The Shepherds of Arcadia, the uh, uh, Notre Dame, uh, uh, forget. Forget the um, second part of the uh, cathedral's name. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just drew a blank on that. But um, uh, it, it's it, the cathedral in Montreal, uh, where it has a lot of um, Mary Magdalene symbolism. Yeah, so that was another artwork we discussed and, and there, there was uh, one at least one statue uh, where we went into a lot of detail uh, and you know, throughout your books you have a lot of uh, references to artwork you have the uh, um, a lot of uh, 
uh, descriptions about the uh, Botticelli Birth of Venus painting and you know, qu- quite a few other ones. It, it is, it, you know, part of the Masonic training, just uh, developing uh, an interest in history and having art appreciation or, you know, is that, you know, is that just uh, happens to be coincidence between uh, you and Bill uh, with, you know, with your training or uh, just one, you know, wondering uh, where you got your eye for art. Right. I mean, I've, I was a history major, so I was interested in this before I became a Freemason. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always been interested in history. Um, that's just, you know, what was my major in college? Um, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's an individual thing. Some Masons may have an interest, some may not. Um, I'm interested in, uh, you know, I try to be as eclectic as possible. I suppose I'm interested in many different subjects and philosophies and history and art, um, you know, comparative studies, things like that. So, Again, it just uh, really depends on the Mason. Um, you know, uh, I've always I've always been interested in it, but I'm sure there are Freemasons out there who are not. I would not put any words in anyone's mouth or anything, um, but it's something I'm interested in. And uh, you know, um, again, it's it's just up to, up to the individual Mason. There's probably Freemasons out there who are interested in things that I'm not interested in, stamp collecting. <laughs> Um, which I know less than nothing about. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's it, it, you know, teach their own and uh, oh. interested in it, but I can't say that others are, you know. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I was just wondering if it, it was um, uh, just uh, part of the you know, a, a training that um, you would go through I, 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 I didn't know. I just, I, I was just asking. Um, no, it's, it's a fair question to ask. Uh, the, the, the question doesn't offend me or anything. Um, no, I mean, it wasn't like uh, I went through the Masonic ritual and then all of a sudden became an art expert or something. Um, you know, you, 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 you know, when I went through it, I was much more interested in sort of the ritual and the comparative symbolism. And again, when you get into that, you'll start seeing this stuff in other places. Um, that, that's kind of where I took it. Um, but you know, again, it's sort of, you know, an individual thing. So like I said, many Masons go through the ritual and don't think anything of it and think nothing more of it. Um, I don't see it that way. I was very interested in it and I was interested in what, was there a deeper meaning that these things were trying to tell me? Um, and in my instance, I believe that to be the case. That's where my research led me. And it's, you know, the same thing with art. It's the same thing with movies. Is there a deeper meaning to this? Um, but again, it's, it's a, it's a study where some, you know, you know, like some artwork does, some artwork doesn't. Same with movies. Some movies veil esoteric imagery. Some do not. And depending on the sophistication of the filmmaker, um, some are much more detailed, than others. Um, and some, some movies can, can be nothing. Um, so again, it's, it's just a, uh, vast, uh, subject matter and it's something that I'm interested in, but some other Masons probably are as well. That wouldn't surprise me of course, but some maybe not. But, but Robert, isn't part of the Masonic journey, um, getting into a greater awareness of yourself and a greater sensitivity to your environment? Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's, I think that's what it's trying to do. Um, but I don't think that always is the case. 
Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's ultimately what it's trying to do. Um, but for some Masons, they could just go through the ritual and think nothing of it and walk away and you never see them again. And that's the end of it. Um, you know, the, the ritual is designed to have this sort of spiritual reawakening, which it can do. But again, it's really, you know, the best way I can describe it is the rituals and the symbols sort of put you on the path. It's up to you to walk it. Some do, some don't. Um, and, you know, for, for me, it did. Um, but for other Masons, you know, maybe not as much to a certain degree, maybe not at all. Um, it can be individual also. Subjective. Barbara, do you have a follow-up? Well, yeah, I just, I, my thought was that, that I mean, when, when, <clears throat> when I was going to do your, your book on the Arch of Enoch, um, I had I had to learn about Mason Freemasonry because though my grandfather was one, I really didn't know anything about it. So the more I learned about it, the more I studied what was available, the more I realized that this is a pathway of, of self awareness that that is available to you. Now, like you said, what you take out of it, you know, depends on what you put into it. Correct. Absolutely. It, it is. It's, I consider it like a modern day mystery school. It's, it's one of those things where the best way I can describe it is a lot of times, you know, the ritual, the hidden meaning is lost. Mm -hmm. um, and, they're, and they're doing the ritual. And they don't even know why. They're just doing the ritual. They have no understanding of the deeper meaning. There are many Masons who are like this. Um, and it's not to put them down or anything, but there are these, these rituals conceal these deeper meanings, but they don't explain it to you. Um, Albert Pike actually talks about this. Um, he actually says something to the effect of we keep these secrets even from ourselves. Um, you know, that, that uh, it, it, it's, it's masonry will put you on the path, but now it's up to you to go out and figure it out for, for yourself. We'll expose you to it, but you've got to, you've got to investigate these, these deeper meanings. And this was one of my motivations for writing the Royal Arch book was to consolidate a lot of information because some of it's here and some of it's here and some of it you'll find here. Um, but I agree with you. I think it is a path of spiritual awakening, but many pe people um, go through it and aren't even aware of that. Yeah, somebody, um, somebody I recently interviewed said that, that we are, we are very into the internet externally. And as we get on it, we, we become more spiritually aligned. We get more attached to the internet instead. Oh, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I mean, and I think, you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of the, the, you know, with the internet and things like that, I mean, this is sort of the Gnostic lesson um, is don't get trapped in the machine. Don't mm -hmm. get trapped. Don't tie your cut. I mean, if you watch, if you watch the movie Metropolis um, and then there was a movie that was made, not a lot of people saw it. It's a great movie. It's a movie. And I recommend it. I came on 2013. It's called Snowpiercer. It's, it's a, um, a science fiction dystopia movie, but it has some parallels with Metropolis because the ultimate lesson of Metropolis is it's the same thing. It's what you're talking about is the conscience, the, the human consciousness is tied to a machine. Um, it's linked to a machine. That's what it is in Metropolis. And that's the same way it is in Snowpiercer. It's it, the consciousness is linked to this train um, that people are on to survive the apocalypse. Um, 
the plot of Snowpiercer is a little far-fetched, but it is original, and I did like the movie. Um, but but that's sort of the Gnostic the Gnostic lesson uh, to be learned is don't tie your conscience, don't, don't link your consciousness to a machine, whether it be the internet, whether it be a train, or whether it be a machine. Um, that's really one of the ultimate lessons of of, of the Gnostic movie um, that it tries to teach is you know, and it's even in the Matrix. You know, don't don't wake up. You know, don't stay static. You know, in the false reality. Um, you know, and you'll even find this motif in, in other movies. Uh, Ready Player One. Uh, it, it's it's the same thing. I don't know if any of you have seen that one, um, but it's the same thing. I mean, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, I'll let you watch it. I won't give it away. But at the very end, there's a scene that's a, that's the allegory of Plato's Cave, where the character basically is in this uh, false digital reality, this make believe world, um, and and the guy who creates it basically says, you know. You know, it's okay, but, you know, you may want to spend some time in the real world from time to time, which is the allegory of, you know, you know, don't buy into the illusion, essentially, which is the allegory of Plato's cave. Um, and, and that's really one of the lessons with, with all these, you know, with all these Gnostic movies. You don't, tie your con don't link your consciousness to a machine. Have you found that there is, in this time frame, a preponderance of one kind of allegory over others? In other words, is there more pushing for don't get lost in the machine, don't get programmed, or is there, you know, are, are you finding that there is a greater preponderance of one type of picture over another? No, I don't think so. I, I think I think you can divide it up kind of easy. I think you can divide it up. I think, I think um, you know, I see a lot of Gnosticism. I see a lot of mysticism. I see a lot of comparative religion. Um, you know, I, 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 see, I see one of the things that I'm now beginning to see that these movies are doing, and, and, and this seems to be the new trend almost, is the movie seems to like to reference other movies. Um, you know, we talk about, um, you know, where movies are referencing these ancient religions, these ancient archetypes, uh, things like that. Now one of the things that seems to be going on is um, they seem to like referencing other movies. Um, maybe that is because, you know, it, it's, it's easier to do and it becomes more, the, the nexus can be formed more easily. Um, that's one of the things I'm seeing right now is, 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 is linking to uh, uh, other movies uh, intentionally. Um, but no, um, you know, one of the things that I, I took on uh, in the Cinema Symbolism 2 book was uh, sort of the fairy tales of, of Walt Disney. Um, and there's another good one that I'm doing for Cinema Symbolism 3, which is Beauty and the Beast, uh, which, is, which is really one of the ultimate ones. Uh, and the reason I held off with that with Cinema Symbolism 2 was, so I was wrapping up Cinema Symbolism 2, they were actually getting ready to release, I think they were making it at the time, the live action version of it, which came out two years ago in February, which was the, this was the one with Emma Watson, um, the live action version of it. Everyone knows the one from the early nineties. And um, I, I watched both of them just recently. Um, and that, those really are, those, those really do have a lot of the archetypal astrological alchemical motifs that are old, old as time. Um, and and that, that, that's, that's uh, one, one of the things that really interested me with this was when I was watching uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, both the 91 version and the 2007 version. I mean, you're dealing with the same themes, you know, of the solar allegory, the lunar allegories, the alchemical allegories, um, a lot of ideas revolving the motion of the sun, the beast being the sun in the winter months, she returns, you know, and then the castle melts away and it's spring. 
And um, I mean, what, what you know, if you, everybody knows the song "Beauty and the Beast" that was done by Celine Dion, and then Ariana Grande just did it. I mean, and, you know, I mean, even the lyric of the song is something to the effect of something like "The sun rises in the east." You know, you know, oldest time. I mean, and that's right. I mean, it's the oldest motif in the world: the sun rising in the east. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of archetypal imagery, but no, I don't, I don't see one thing. And that's kind of what I like about Hollywood. I don't see one thing taking over another. I still see loads of ancient religion, astrology, Gnosticism. I guess right now, the one thing I'm sort of seeing is movies referencing other movies. That seems to be the in thing right now. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot more fantasy coming out. M- maybe that's just because I like fantasy better or... <laughs> But a lot of the um, Harry Potter stuff, a lot of um, you know the 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 spinoff from Harry Potter, the 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 stuff that supposedly took place before Harry Potter. Um, Avatar. A, well, no, I haven't seen any of those yet. I I keep yelling at you about Avatar. I'm I'm glad you're going to look at his Interstellar, but Avatar has so much in it i can't believe you why don't you just do you ever go to the movies for just fun yeah oh absolutely uh, i i definitely can watch a movie uh just for fun um i might be taking some notes in the back of my head but no i can i can definitely uh i, I can definitely um you know watch a movie for fun um and like i said not all movies have it uh, not all movies are, are veiled with esoteric imagery uh, a hell of a lot of them are though um and it just goes to show you that, you know, these guys really seem, really seem to know what they're doing. Um, and it, it's, it's just so a fascinating subject for me. Um, but, but, you know, yeah, Cinema Symbolism 3 is well underway. How, how much of this is intentional and how much of this is subliminally intentional? Because, right. I, you know, I, I know a lot of times it, you know, they'll say it feels like it should be this way. Or is it, I want to do it this way because it's going to affect the subconsciousness of those watching it in a way. Oh, I think most of it is intentional. I mean, I think, I think a lot, a lot of it is intentional. I think sometimes you can deal with um, things being unintentionally in place to, placed in movies. Um, you know, you're dealing with the collective unconscious, the subconscious mind. So yeah, I mean, I mean that, that can happen um, where it's unconscious, but I mean, th- this is another one. Um, I mean, go to beauty and the beast again. Because, I mean, that, that whole movie, like all the fairy tales, like Snow White, Cinderella, um, what's the other one, Sleeping Beauty, these all have to do with the sun and the resurrected sun at the vernal equinox, the, the female character being the dawn, the, the, uh, the, the, the male prince charming, the blue-eyed, you know, sun god figure who's unified, breaks the spell. Um, and if you watch Beauty and the Beast, even even if you watch the cartoon version from '91, I mean, the, 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 where the Beast is, it's it's the winter months. It's perpetually cold, um, and then she's the dawn, and then she returns, and then she breaks the spell. Then he becomes the blonde hair, blue eyed sun god. And like I said, the count, count you know, the, the the winter melts away, the sun rises in, in you know in the behind them. And what's interesting is, and this was kind of getting back harkens back to what you're asking: is this intentional? Um, you know, everybody remembers that song, you know, the Beauty and the Beast song. I mean, not the one, you know, Be Our Guest, but, you know, one that Celine Dion sang. But, but wait, he, wait, you said Celine Dion. It was Angela Lansbury that sang it. In well, the- well it, Angela Lansbury sings it in the movie, but then they released the song with Celine Dion did it 
in that was the pop song. That was the Celine Dion did it as the pop song. Oh, okay. They, they did the same thing in this one. In this one, Mrs. Potts is played by Emma Thompson, and she sings it in the movie. But then Ariana Grande did a cover of it for you know the teenagers basically. Yeah. But, but at okay. the end, of the, at the end of the live action version of it, um, they actually add a lyric. This is at the very end of, of the live action movie. This is the one that came out two years ago with Emma Watson and, and you know, Emma Thompson played Mrs. Potts, where they actually add a lyric to the Beauty and the Beast song. And the lyric is, winter turns to spring. So these people know what's going on. I mean, that's what the whole movie's about. It's a solar allegory of, of, of the falling of the winter months and the return of spring. And they actually, if you watch the live action movie, they actually add a lyric to it where it says where winter turns to spring. So these, these people know what this is. They know what's going on. And uh, I believe it's completely intentional. And again, when you start seeing it, when it's really meticulous um, and you can tie it in with something, these guys know what they're doing. I believe it intentional, but there are instances where the subconscious mind, where these movie makers are affected as well. And you might see something slip in that's not intentional. Again, this would be, I would default on that. Then, then if you ask that question, then you're dealing with Jung's collective unconscious and Plato's theory of forms. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Rob, speaking of the intentional placement of symbols in, what, a week and a half, uh, we're going to get inundated with the, oh, the Super Bowl halftime, it was so Illuminati-oriented and all the... Yeah, Facebook stuff is going to go all over the place about analyzing the symbols and you know what the elites are up to. Okay, what do you think of is that uh, nonsense? Yes. Yeah, no, nonsense. <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, you know, uh, you know, a couple phrases can't be used, but uh, well, yeah. There's, they're, they're theatrical performances. Uh, yeah. I mean, and you know, they're, they're, they, they're going to draw on like anything else. I mean, a lot of, you know, they, they can draw on mystical motifs and things like that, but that doesn't make it evil by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I mean, go, go watch a Shakespeare play. You're going to see goblins, ghouls, ghosts, witches, Yep. You want you want to argue to me that William Shakespeare is evil? Go watch the uh, Mozart Illuminati style magic flute opera, um, you know, which has a lot of Egyptian mythology in it. Uh, the 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 um, uh, Wagner, uh, the Ring Cycle is the Odinic mysteries of Odin. Um, you know, a Super Bowl performance is just that. A, a, you know, halftime. You know, I mean, they, they could draw on mysticism. Um, that doesn't make it necessarily evil or anything like that. Um, and, you know, uh, I mean, these people jumped to all kind of crazy conclusions. I remember one a couple of years ago that um, was funny was uh, – I can't remember who it was. I, 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 I'm like everyone else. When the halftime show comes on, I, I hit the head. I go to the bathroom and put the TV on mute and then come back when the game's on. Um, but there was one a couple of years ago. I can't remember what it was. Um, and it was a checkerboard black and white checkerboard and people immediately jumped on this. Oh, that's, you know, the Freemasons, that's the floor of Solomon's temple. This is Freemasonic. Well, if you watch the video um, going on in the background, they had dancers dressed up like chess pieces. Um, and it was a chessboard. Um, no, no, nothing more than that. Um, and it was the pieces of the chessboard were just dancing around just, just for whatever reason. I'm completely innocuous. Um, so, 
you know, people can take this stuff out of context all the time. Uh, but anytime you're dealing with some sort of theatrical performance, you know, I mean, you know, or story, I mean, you you, you could tie into mystical um, symbolism and mystical themes, you know, or the occult or comparative religion. I mean, that doesn't make it bad or negative. I don't think so in any way. But aren't we subliminally programmed to recognize those archetypes and kind of our consciousness goes, aha, that's what, this is going to be the bad guy and this is going to be the good guy and all of that. Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, but that's everybody. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that using archetypal imagery is necessarily a bad thing. Um, I mean, like I said a lot, I mean, I, I was on a show um, years ago uh, and I, I had, I actually, it was on a, it was a radio show. And a Hollywood screenwriter actually called in and he said, oh, yeah, he said, when I write a script, I'm going for the archetypes. You know, you know, I mean, the, the mother, the father, the lovers, he said, that's all part of this. Um, and, you know, so, you know, these guys are aware of it. And it is it's it's part of mythology. And it's, you know, it, you, you look at the archetypes. Well, what are they based upon? It's the sun. It's the moon. It's the stars. It's the constellation. It's the zodiac. It's the seasons. And you just find these same themes repeated over and over and over again. The only thing you can do is be aware of it. Um, and that's, again, one of my motivating factors for writing the books. Just be conscious of it. That's probably the best, the best you can hope for, as it were. Yeah, the, when I was watching Avatar, the the first thing that went through my mind was, oh, Robert's going to like this one. Same thing with Interstellar. Um, yeah. I, I've had a lot of people come at me with Interstellar, so that's one I'm definitely taking. One, I'm doing a section on some science fiction movies because I want to. I want to cover the. Um, I want to cover the two new Star Wars movies, but I want to also tie in some uh, other science fiction movies um, as well. So I'm, I'm definitely doing uh, the new Star Wars movies, the uh, the Force Awakens and the Last Jedi. Lots mm -hmm. going on in those, um, and same with the. Um, I haven't seen Solo yet, but the other one, uh, Rogue One, has some interesting things. And every, I've, had, I've had about 10 people tell me to take a look at Interstellar. So I definitely plan on doing that one. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. But like I said, that's uh, going to be in the uh, section on, like, you know, like the new Star Wars section. Going to be on science fiction movies because I definitely want to get into some of the new Star Wars films. Mm. Well, your books do absolutely change the way anybody <clears throat> looks at a movie for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that that's a good thing. I think I think I think the one thing that I, I, I try to do is is to point this stuff out um, and just be cognizant of it and, and under, understand that these movies, like everything else, are multi-layered. Um, and there's a lot of times, you know, themes going on beneath the celluloid that, you know, these guys plant there and they hide these little clues uh, to hope for that you'll pick up one to convey these more deeper meanings. Um, and they do it, and some of them are more expert at it than others. But, uh, you know, it, it's happening. I mean, and, and what I'm seeing now is um, a lot of times these guys don't even, I mean, it, it seemed to be up until recent, maybe it's just a, it's a side effect of the Internet, that this was kind of, you know, um, kept under wraps, things like that. But, um now you watch interviews with some of these directors and these filmmakers. I mean, they, they, they talk about it much more openly. Um, I remember uh, watching um, 
you know, an inter- you know, an interview with uh, I can't remember who it was, but uh, he was talking about in this interview. It was like, oh well, the costuming this symbolized that, and I was going for when when you start hearing things like that, then you know. I mean, then they're telling you, um, you know. But but it seems to be now where they're doing it and they're much more um, open about it than previously. Well, well, um, you do notes your um, experience in the at Oxford's Ashmolean Museum Uh, what did the uh, like you know year where you were studying at Oxford have as a uh, lasting impact on you. Well, right. The, the Ashmolean Museum turns up in V for Vendetta. Um, it doesn't turn up directly, but it, it has with the shadow gallery of V, which is paralleling the, what, what uh, Elias Ashmole did. Elias Ashmole is a very uh, important character in the English Civil War in the 17th century. He was a lawyer. He was an occultist. Uh, he was a mystic. Uh, and he involves with Rosicrucianism, alchemy, um, and he is one of the first people that we have record of being initiated into Freemasonry um, prior to the Grand Lodge formation in 1717. Um, and one of the things he did was, um, one of the things he was really into, and this became his museum, was he collected oddball artifacts. Um, I mean, he collected artwork and, you know, fossils and things like that. You know, your standard run of the fair uh, you know, things you'll find in a museum, but he also was interested in some like, you know, really macabre, um, you know, one of a kind type historical ar- artifacts. Um, and if you ever go, if you go into, um, it's in, in Oxford. Uh, he, 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 he was, he was at Oxford university. Um, and, uh, he, there's a museum there called the Ashmolean museum. It's named after him. And it's by far and away, one of the most, um, uh, interesting museums uh, that you ever go into. Uh, not only, uh, in Oxford or in England, but probably in all the world. Um, and, and one of the things that's really special about it is he does have this sort of oddball collection of these historical artifacts that are, that are very unique. Uh, and, and the, 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 the three items that, that, that just jump off at you. Um, and one of them, I mean, is what, what the place is known for. Um, and this is how it kind of ties into V for Vendetta was, I mean, that the, you'll find, um, uh, Poe Houghton's mantle, um, Poe Houghton is the father of Pocahontas and his mantle is there. Um, you'll find in the Ashmolean Museum, uh, Henry VIII's hawking uh, material, his hawking glove, things like that. Uh, Oliver Cromwell's pocket watch is at the Ashmolean Museum. But the, the, the one relic that it's really known for, of course, and that everybody goes to see is Guy Fawkes's lantern uh, from, uh, the night that he was arrested for trying to blow up parliament on November 5th, 1605. This is of course Guy, you know, Guy Fox night, bonfire night. Um, they had the lantern that he was using, uh, to plant explosives, uh, beneath the houses of parliament where he was trying to blow up, uh, James the first, uh, King of England in parliament, uh, as part of the counter reformation, uh, Guy Fox's lantern is there. And if you ever watch V for the vendetta, um, the character V actually has a shadow gallery that kind of resembles this. And of course the, the V for Vendetta movie, um, that's how it opens with is Guy Fox trying to blow up parliament in 1605. Um, and if you ever want to see the actual lantern and you're ever in Oxford, by all means go in the Ashmolean museum, 
uh, right there, right there in the showcases, uh, Guy Fox's lantern. Uh, quite the artifact, uh, pro probably one of the things they're really known for. So if you're ever in England and you're ever in Oxford and you get a chance, by all means, go in the Ashmolean Museum. Uh, you won't regret it. Okay. Rob, uh, you, know, you mentioned um, you know, Fritz Lang's masterpiece, uh, Metropolis. Um, Hey, you know, we've touched on uh, the cabinet of uh, Dr. Caligari. What were the, you know, all these, uh, you know, the hidden symbols, the, you know, uh, Egyptian myth, mythological uh, stories being retold in, you know, like the German expression of film here. Yeah. Did, did that start in uh, like the G German films before America or is it about the same time? Did uh, America uh, uh, glom on to that first? Uh, uh, you know, how long is this, uh, idea of putting all these symbols in movies been there just from the beginning or yeah, absolutely absolutely okay. i mean you won't the, the metropolis is more gnostic than it is egyptian it's really not an egyptian motif at all um uh fritz lang's metropolis is is really again gnosticism proper where um you know, you have the Demiurge character, Joe Frederson, uh, who is the ruler of Metropolis. And of course, he keeps all the spiritual workers in suppression, um, their consciousness tied to the machine. Um, and it's about spiritual liberation. Uh, but no, I, I mean, I would say, you know, you know, I mean, as far as when did this stuff start appearing? No, I mean, day one. Um, and like I said, you can trace this stuff back through the works of Richard Wagner. You can trace it through the works of Mozart, Shakespeare. Your fairy tales are occult, uh, dealing with the movement and the sun. I mean, you know, this, this goes back to the beginning of time. Anytime there's this artistic expression, you're dealing with this ancient mythology. And Hollywood is no different. The filmmaking industry is no different. Um, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, Nosferatu, uh, you know, is, is another one. This is based on the Dracula story uh, by Bram Stoker. And again, this, the, this has to do with um, the, 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 the hidden motif, the hidden theme in that one is Madame Blavatsky and Theosophy invading Victorian England. Hang on. <laughs> so, um, essentially, I mean, since day one, I mean, then even, you know, you get into the early days of Hollywood with the universal horror movies, again, with Dracula, with Lugosi, Frankenstein's Monsters, a Kabbalistic Golem. You get into the Wizard of Oz, you know, which I've talked about many a time before, the symbolism going on that. So, 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 you know, you know, when you're dealing with artistic expression, you're dealing with day one, um, that you'll find these esoteric motifs. This is not a modern invention um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you will find these occult themes, these esoteric themes, um, definitely at the very get-go of Hollywood and the filmmaking industry. Okay. It, um, you know, we really haven't discussed one of the uh, landmark series 
in cinematic history, uh, but you know, we need to uh, touch on it uh, briefly as you know, we're getting down to what probably about the last 10 minutes of our captivating show. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we need to, uh, to just give a little, uh, analysis of some of the James Bond uh, movies. Uh, and I think you just said uh, Goldfinger and that, that was about all we've touched on. What, uh, you know, what, uh, what's a little bit more of the, uh, how, how do the James Bond movies fit into all this esoteric symbolism? Well, this was um, the James Bond movies and Ian Fleming was something I took on in the first movie book. And yeah, it's, it's a great, uh, interesting talking point. Um, Fleming uh, was in counterintelligence during World War II and one of the people that he was under, excuse me, one of uh, the people he, who he handled was Aleister Crowley, of all things. Um, and when it comes to Fleming, I mean, yeah, you will, de- you will definitely find an esoteric occult thread um, moving through all his works, um, whether it be the James Bond sigil 007, which is a reference to John D, uh, Queen Elizabeth's court astrologer. Uh, you know, when he wrote correspondences to her, he signed it 007. Uh, the, the symbol was supposed to be eyeglasses or spyglasses, symbolizing the correspondence was for her eyes only and he was her eyes in the field. Um, but you will find a hermetic thread going through the works of Fleming and same with, you know, his fellow comrades, um, you know, you know, Crowley mingled with all three of these guys, which is Raul Dahl, who did the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And of course, Dennis Wheatley, who did The Devil Rides Out, which, again, we, I mentioned earlier, has the Crowley analog in it, which is Mokata. And then with Fleming, with Bond, I mean, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll find hermetic threads uh, going through whether you're, you know, the, the villains. You know, you, you have James Bond as the solar hero. You have, you know, this whole al- alchemical, allegorical motif going on with the uni- unification of the sun and moon, the Bond, the solar hero, and the unification with the sacred feminine being the Bond girl, equipping Bond to go on and defeat the Bond villain. And, you know, you have the alchemist, Auric Goldfinger, AU, you know, this, you know, is the chemical symbol for gold, AU, Auric Goldfinger, Goldfinger, who is literally... I mentioned earlier that um, a lot of the alchemical movies deal with transition of the self. Um, Not so in Goldfinger. That is really probably your ultimate alchemical movie where the alchemist Goldfinger is actually trying to transmute the gold. He's trying to uh, radiate the gold in Fort Knox with the philosopher's stone, which for him is the little mini nuclear device to decrease its value. Therefore alchemically altering the value of his gold, making it worth more money. Um, or making it, you know, uh, incre- increasing the, the value of it. I think he says tenfold in the movie. So um, we have the alchemist or Goldfinger. Then we have, of course, the dragon, Hugo Drax. Um, I mean, you have the Illuminati puppet master, you know, number one, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, who worked, you know, who, who runs the Illuminati, you know, Cabal Spectre, um, you know, who pulls the strings of both the East and the West. You know, what, what Spectre, special executive command for, counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, extortion, I, I think it stands for um, something along those lines. So, um, you know, then, I mean, you, you just look at the, the blonde stories in and of themselves. I mean, you have, 
you know, the, the, the wizard figure, the, 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 the gadget maker, the wisdom provider, you know, you, you call this archetype, you know, I call him the Hermes Trismegistus archetype. Um, this would be Q, the quartermaster, who is always supplying the wisdom, um, you know, in the form of the miraculous gadget that winds up saving Bond's life. Um, so you have these hermetic occult threads and, and, and symbolisms uh, going on inside the James Bond novels and movies. And again, it's, it's Fleming, you know, you're dealing with a guy who's, you know, working hand in glove with Aleister Crowley. So this should really come as no surprise to anybody. Um, I love the James Bond movies. I think they're great. I'm a huge fan of the earlier ones, though. The ones with Sean Connery and some of the ones with Roger Moore. I mean, and, and what's the one? I mean, you have the one, my God, the voodoo one. I mean, where you, you know, we have the tarot cards. The, the, the man with a golden gun? No, that's uh, Live and Let Die um, is the voodoo one. But Live and Let Die also um, de- deals with uh, what's funny in Live and Let Die is, um, or excuse me, Man with the Golden Gun, um, that deals with the sun. Um, that's, again, another sol- solar motif where, where the man with the golden gun is trying to harness, I think, the energies of the, of the sun to create some sort of super weapon or so- of some kind. Um, again, another, you know, solar, you know, astrological, astronomical motif. So um, interesting movies, uh, great, a lot of great hermetic threads. That's uh, a whole chapter in uh, the first cinema book. So that's Cinema Symbolism Part One, uh, if you're interested in James Bond. Okay. Um, well, we may have uh, four minutes or about five minutes left. Um Rob, do you have any upcoming appearances, uh, conferences, some, some, something like that to promote? Well, no, if, if I just check out my website, really. Um, I've always, when I come on shows, just go to the website. Uh, my name, it's my name. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. The website is robertwsullivaniv.com. Uh, there's links to um, buy the books. They're in the print edition or the ebook whatever you choose. It's an easy page to navigate. I do update it with appearances and events, um, mostly radio right now. Um, that's really what I'm concentrating on. Um, the page is the, the pages updated routinely with upcoming events. And of course there's links to all my social media. Follow me on Twitter. Um, I just created a new uh, Facebook fan page. Um, you can go like that. Um, so um you know, by all means, go go to uh, the webpage. You know, if you're interested in me, www.robertwsullivaniv.com um, is the link uh, there to buy the books, links, information about me, follow me on social media, uh, all information about uh, events and appearances. And uh, again, thank you guys for having me on Nightlight. It was a pleasure to be here, and uh, I really appreciated it. And I thought it was a great interview, and uh, I look forward to returning in the future. Oh, yeah, yeah. we'll uh, definitely have you back. And when can we expect Cinema Symbolism 3? Yeah, that's probably looking, um, to be honest, probably at the at the earliest, probably early next year. Um, that's probably still a little bit away. Okay. Um, I've got it all outlined uh, pretty much, but... Um, you know, uh, I'm working on it now. I'm working on a couple other things as well, but hopefully maybe early next year. We'll see. Um, we'll see. Okay. Uh, well, we will hopefully have you back around that time. Um, you know, and is there, you know, we, you, you, you know, Rob, you always have an open invitation. You're always, uh, 
one of the most thought-provoking guests. So we want you we want you back. Well, thank you. I look forward to returning. Like I said, uh, when the new book's out, we'll definitely um, reschedule and, you know, maybe do something in the late summer or fall. Uh, you know, I'd love to come on. Always interested in talking uh, movies and, uh, you know, yeah. talking movie symbolism. Yeah. And let's, uh, let's see. I think February 5th, uh, yeah, we're going to have kind of an exclusive on uh, uh, – America's prehistory that really hasn't been explored, and we're going to have a couple guests with us talking about um, the Chinese being in 15th century America. So that's the our February 5th show. Uh, February 12th and 13th, we're going to have two world-class musicians, uh, a couple more surprises at the, uh, on the 19th and 26th, uh, February shaping up for, uh, some really fun shows and just keep, keep, uh, checking Barbara's website, barbaradelong.com. And I think we're getting pretty close to, um, uh, you know, we're wrapping up the show and we will see you on a live show on February 5th. Absolutely. Good night, everybody now. Th- thank you, everyone.